Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Listening to a special episode of Popcorn Podcast with Lee and Tim, where we talk to the director of Mitram, Justin Kurzel, as well as the writer Sean Grant, to find out more about this controversial Australian film. I'm Timmy Fland, movie buff, and I'm Lee Livingstone, entertainment journalist, and we love to talk all things movies. Mitram lives with his mother and father in suburban Australia in the mid-1990s. He's an isolated loner, unable to fit in, until he finds a close friend in reclusive heiress Helen. When that friendship abruptly ends, Nitram's loneliness and anger grow as he devolves to the point of committing mass murder. Nitram is directed by Justin Kurzel with a screenplay by Sean Grant. The movie stars Caleb Landry-Jones, Essie Davis, Judy Davis and Anthony LaPaglia. Now, Popcorn Podcast invited director Justin Kurzel and writer Sean Grant to talk about their film that reflects on one of the darkest chapters in Australia's history, the Port Arthur Massacre. The events leading up to the horrific event where 35 people were killed and 23 more injured are explored in Nitram, which has been met with opposition from people still affected by the mass murder. There's been a lot of discussion about the film and whether it should have been made. So we asked Curzel and Grant to expand on their decision to delve into this story and share how they approached handling it with sensitivity. Laughing at my pain. Laughing like it was the funniest thing in the world. Hi, Justin. Hi, Sean. Thank you for joining us to talk Nitram. Most Australians would remember the tragedy of Port Arthur, but not the story probably behind the headlines. Sean, how did you go about piecing together the lead up? Just a lot of research, a lot of reading, but, you know, I am old enough to remember clearly where I was on that day and and it stuck with me, those events of that uh, horrendous Sunday. And, uh, yeah, it, w- it was kind of in the back of my mind for, for years and years, but it wasn't until sort of 
2018 and I'd been living in Los Angeles for sort of six years and mass shootings are um, much more prevalent there than, than they are here, that, it, that it, my mind sort of turned to uh, dramatising it for the screen. And then, and then going through, I'd, I'd looked at it from different points of view and retelling, so I'd actually known about the story quite a lot and, and remembered it. And, yeah, all those elements that you speak of, the lead-up and the, and the characters that come in and out of it were quite peculiar. And quite often people see the film and they're like, oh, what's true and what's not did you make this up and you're like no that was you know Helen was like that and you know the, these events happened and he traveled and so yes it was just a lot of piecing it together and getting a clear understanding of why I was telling it and how I was going to tell it that sort of led me to a once I'd done the work and it because it literally had been you know something in the back of my mind for you know nigh on a decade mm. um, the actual writing of it happened really really fast uh, I didn't tell Justin I was doing it over sort of a Christmassy winter period because I was in LA, as I said. And um, yeah, I just sent the script to Justin with a sort of a text saying, check your inbox. And that's kind of how it all got moving forward. Did you manage to get any cooperation from any of the locals who were there? Uh, well, I was on the other side of the world, so uh, there, was, there wasn't too much of that. And then since, mm. you know, it's been uh, it's been challenging. So, you know, you, you kind of do as much as you can. Yeah, Joseph, do you want to speak to more of that as, as the process got moving in terms of reaching out? It's been a bit tricky because usually you would go through, like, so, for example, with Snowtown, we went through victims of crime. You know, they were an incredibly effective conduit between those that want to understand more about the film and want to um, ask questions or have any engagement with the filmmakers. They were able to kind of do that with, with, with this one. Unfortunately, the Victims of Crime Service in Tasmania refused to have engagement with us. So, you know, we had to go about it where we weren't forcing the film or us on those that were connected directly or indirectly with the shootings, but at the same time be available for any, um, you know, any questions or, or um, discussions about why we were making the film and, and how it was being made. You know, obviously we didn't film in, um, on the Tasman Peninsula in Port Arthur. We filmed in Geelong and that was purely the sensitivity of the subject matter. And I've lived in Tasmania for the last four years. My wife's Tasmanian. We've been coming back and forth for 25 years and you know in that time it's you know it's a one degree of separation here so in that time you meet and are around many people that have been affected by that day so you know I have over the time had you know, discussions and conversations and even after it was announced and that we were making the film I've continued to have discussions you know and some of them have been difficult and some of them have been really interesting in regards to understanding and learning more things about that that day and about the individual it's, it's really been about trying to be as available as possible, but at the same time respecting mm. that, you know, there are those that don't believe a film like this should be made and, and we completely understand that. Mm, it is understandable. It's a tricky line to walk as well. How does it make you feel as a filmmaker pushing ahead with this project and, and knowing there's some resistance but also believing in the project? Well, I think that's it. You, you At the end of the day, you know, you have to tread gently and you have to tread sensitively and you have to keep your ears really open. But you also have to sort of believe why you're making it because it's that belief that hopefully guides you as to how you make it. So we've always been very aware of that. You know, I, I think that with film and with writing and with painting and with music, I think there, there, there's opportunity to sort of 
look at really difficult subject matter, you know, and, and, and definitely kind of dark chapters that we may have experienced and, and, and allow you to kind of have a discussion with it and feel as though there's a sort of safety in that. You know, that's been important to us as to kind of how can we have a conversation about this event? And, you know, it's really interesting. Our crew was very, very young. And, you know, I've got to say a lot of them weren't even born, you know, in 1996. So, you know, the, for Sean and I, it's the, that, that day was seismic. You know, we, we, that, the country changed forever after that, especially Tasmania. And uh, you, you knew where you were on that day when it, when it happened. But for some of our crew, it's a reflection, you know, it's, it's an event that they um, really know nothing about. So it, it's been really interesting sort of, sort of understanding that there is a couple generations that don't quite understand, I, I guess, kind of what happened on that day and, and also what changed on that after that day in, in regards to gun reform, why we do have the gun reform that we do um, because of because of that you know, terrible day. So this question is for the both of you. Why this story and why now? I ask myself when writing any, anything and, and the why now really came about when I conceived the, the idea and really dug into writing it was sort of that 2018 period and I'd been living in Los Angeles and there was a, a, a number of incidents. One in July, from memory it was, my, my wife was going to go to our local grocery store but got called to work and she went to work and, a, and, a, and an individual ran into that grocery store and started shooting. And then in end of October and early November, in the space of 10 days, there was a mass shooting in Pittsburgh and there was a mass shooting in Thousand Oaks, which is just outside of LA. And, and, and living in America, you, you are just bombarded by it, the, the regularity of it all. And I was getting, you know, like everyone there, I believe you get frustrated. You know, you're like, what can I do? What can I do? And as a writer, I can only do one thing. And that kind of, you know, set me about, wanting to investigate why do these things happen and how do they come about and if it wasn't for the fact that they continued to the film wouldn't need to exist but the scary truth is these individuals do exist and it was really about looking at them and understanding what gun reform does in order to protect the community and how important it was um, that was really the fundamental reason for for digging into it mm. on my behalf and justin what about you I think it was that experience of reading the script for the first time in one particular scene, which was when he walked into the gun store and bought two semi-automatic weapons, like he was buying fishing rods without a license. Mm -hmm. And I've never sort of thought of gun reform or why we have these reforms in the same way as when I read that scene. And it was because I felt it. I thought that, you know, Sean had taken me into a world that felt familiar and recognisable. I, I, could, I could see that family. I could feel that person that you'd cross the street to get away from because they were coming to you and you didn't quite know who they were the the guy that perhaps you bullied or was bullied um at at school the mother that always looks fatigued because they're trying to kind of keep up with a child that's incredibly kind of challenging that world like i kind of felt it just felt familiar and recognizable and the way sean had sort of crafted it where you know, at that moment that that character becomes isolated, at that moment that they become their most dangerous, that they walk into that gun shop and so effortlessly buy those that weaponry, 
to me, just it just spoke to me in a really powerful way. And I felt it. I felt it more than any discussion or debate about gun reform, you know, and, and, and that is what I think art can do at times. It can speak to you in a sort of, you know, in a kind of visceral, emotional and truthful way that perhaps other forms can't. So there was just something immediate about that that, that stayed, you know, when we shot the film, um, it was the gun shop scene that we all looked at each other and sort of went, I, I, you know, we know why we're making this. And, and it was the same in the edit as well. Um, and it's even the same when we watched it, you know, in Khan for the first time with an audience. That scene, you know, people were gasping and you understood and you could feel their trust in that character had eroded. Their sense of danger in that character had increased. And there was something about that scene that was incredibly shocking to them. And I think it was the sort of banality and the ordinariness and the absurdity, the horrific absurdity of, of, of someone like that being able to buy that sort of weaponry. Sean, was there ever a version of the script that included the massacre or went through what happened afterwards? Uh, there was certainly a, a, a version. In fact, there was a version that we we actually shot where there was a like a postscript scene where the, the protagonist ends up back at the bed and breakfast and, and has a phone call with a police officer. But it was all about the lead up to it. I mean, both Justin and I were um, were interested in, as opposed to other films, you know, of being a real restraint and, a, and it's strange to use the word gentleness to it, but uh, a gentle dread, I guess, in a way of the lead up to violence, what creates it rather than, than explicitly showing it. But even that postscript scene, which we... Um, Jazz actually directed and shot and Caleb performed and isn't in the film is, is the result of the moment that character does what he does, we just severed ties with that individual. And, and Justin spoke, you know, we were on set talking about not knowing where to put the camera. Caleb was unsure as to how to perform it. It really was the defining moment where you just cannot, you know, any, any sort of empathy or anything is just gone. It's just mm -hmm. completely um, taken away. So yeah, that, that kind of was the, the decision that was made. For me, it was, uh, it was a different thing. Violence to me on screen has to absolutely earn its place and be required. In Snowtown, I felt that was the case because in order to see what the lead character, Jamie, was to do, you had to kind of feel, feel it and be in it. And, and in this case, um, we didn't find that was necessary. Speaking of Caleb, I guess some may comment on the fact that he's an American playing this really emotional Australian role. But Caleb Landry-Jones is just absolutely deserving of all the praise, <laughs> amazing performance. What did you see in him, Justin, when casting? I think Sean and I was the first person that we gravitated to, which is really strange because he's Texan and American, but there was something about how memorable he was in some films that we really admired. And, and there was a quality about him that was unusual. And we were very fortunate to, to meet up with him in Los Angeles. And he, he really responded to the screenplay. And just being around him, it was something that was speaking to us very clearly that he was the one. And we just had to make sure that, you know, the, the accent would work because the last thing we wanted was a terrible Australian accent in a film sort of like this. Mm -hmm. So he went about, you know, learning it and, and, and doing it for probably at least a good six months before we started filming. We're just very lucky. He, he's an extraordinary actor. And look, there are some actors that I think you'd sort of look at and you you know that there's no way they're not going to be anything other than American. But with Caleb, he's such a sort of enigma and he's such a sort of chameleon that we, we really felt as though he had the ability to be able to um, immerse himself in Australian culture and sort of be and feel part of it. 
What kind of things did he do to inform his performance? Uh, he watched a lot of Neighbours and, <laughs> and, and E Street and Hey Hey Saturday from the 90s. I know that sounds kind of odd, but there's a particular accent that is in the 90s that is real, you know, and he'd come on set and start speaking this particular Australian accent and everyone's thinking, where is that from Adelaide? Is it from? <laughs> and it's actually from the 90s. It was really just about surrounding himself with as much music and culture and and we, we'd shot the film down in Geelong. So, you know, there, there's a there's a huge part of the film which is about identity and about not being part of something and a huge part of a culture that he wanted to be included in was the surf culture. So, you know, down on, you know, along that coastline in Geelong, it's, it's pretty formidable, that culture, and it's um, intimidating. So I think Caleb spent a lot of time, you know, a, around a kind of a world that, that he was never going to be part of, but that he sort of desperately wanted to. So it, it, was, it was sort of interesting how he sort of immersed himself in that world. It's also a big part of the film is, is isolation. And, and even when writing it, I thought it was a big part of the film. And then without knowing that a global pandemic was going to hit and people watch the film now and talk about it as though it's a COVID type film. And for Caleb, he was, you know, when he, I guess he'd signed on because we were in LA and I remember we were clearly at a restaurant. So it was before the madness happened. And then he's shut down, locked down. He goes and spends, you know, in the lead up to this film, he was living in a ranch in Texas you know, isolated. He, we flew him into the country, he had to do hotel quarantine, isolated. You know, there, I think all of those things actually bled into the performance in some way. Can you tell me a bit about the decision to use Nitrum, which is obviously Martin spelled backwards? Two major reasons for it, and they may not be the reasons that one actually thinks, but I guess the first is that when researching these events, these these mass um, shooting events, I, I found a, a commonality amongst the perpetrators. I found they had similar tropes or background, you know, anger management or um, struggled at school or uh, a loss of a father figure or an absence of one. And so it, I, in order to be universal and, and speak to them as a whole, you know, I had to be specific and I focused on this one case, but there was something about them that I found quite similar. So not limiting it to a one individual, but giving them a, a, a kind of an umbrella name, I guess, allowed me to do that. And when we, we, it was discovered in, in the research and mentioned that he had this nickname, that kind of allowed me to do it. And also... Uh, a big aspect of the film is about identity and about someone trying to find it and he'll go from attempting it with surfing to uh, landing in the music world with Helen or he'll be travelling and then, sadly, for all involved, he finds it in this gun culture. But this idea of identity and if you could place that to a name as well, trying to find a name, it kind of made sense so it was it was those two major things and then of course there's that element of just out of respect for those that that were involved um that kind of led us to to that to wrap up the reception to the film has been incredible on the international festival circuit this question is for both of you what are your hopes for how it will be received when it gets a wider release in australia there's been so much discussion about the film before it's even been seen and i completely understand that <laughs> and respect it. I, I hope it starts a discussion about gun reform and I hope it starts a discussion about those sort of people that perhaps we've ignored or we've not spent sort of any time 
trying to ask questions about. I hope it sort of speaks to a sense of sort of disconnect and isolation that feels really um, apparent at the moment. I think we made this as an anti-gun film. I think we, we did right from the beginning. It was very clear. And I think right at the moment when these laws and reforms that happened in 12 days in 1996, you know, they're being challenged. You know, some have been softened. There are some that were never put into place. There are more guns in Australia now than there were in 1996. And um, I think we need to keep on talking and keep on discussing and having a conversation as to why it's important. So especially for, you know, generations of Australians that were not here, were not born in that time. So, you know, it is a reflection on a, on a pretty dark chapter in our history. And I think it's important that we keep on discussing those dark chapters and having you know, conversations about them and feeling as though we can. And Sean, what about yourself? Oh, look, when you release a film, having done it a few times now, you really don't know how they go. And and I do hate to speak to what an audience member may get or not from the film because it's really whatever they bring to it. So I'd keep it as simple as I hope that the people that want to see it, see it and the people that don't, don't. It was a very, the issue of censorship came up in the creation of this film and I'm, and I'm a firm believer and I'm hopeful that this country, you know, allows difficult subject to, to be matter to be looked at and I'd hate for the fact that we can't create things about certain subjects. I, I, that was not the Australia that I believed that I lived in and loved. So, yeah, I just generally hope, if, if, you know, I'm really proud that it's there and that, that people that wish to see it can. And for those that don't, I totally understand that as well. Thank you so much for your time today, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks. If anyone's doubting whether they should or want to see this film, you only have to listen to the filmmakers to see that they came at it with purpose and clarity and sensitivity and respect that was forefront in their minds when making this film. If you'd like to hear our take on the film Nitram, our episode is available now for you to listen to on your favourite podcast platform. And Nitram is in select Australian cinemas from September 30, lockdowns pending. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. We have a website, popcornpodcast.com. Make sure you check it out. We've got all our episodes up there for you. If you'd like to get to know us a little better, there's an About Us section and we run ticket giveaways. So keep an eye on the website for more information. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.